So today, what I'd like to do on the podcast is tell a little bit of my own story, how I have ended up in the field of agriculture that I've been in for 40 years. And really looking back at the beginning of it, I've got to say, this is great. I'm really glad, but it was really just sort of a happy accident that this ever happened. I didn't grow up knowing anything about farming. My family was already several generations removed from any ancestor who had farmed. I grew up in the suburbs of southwest Denver, Colorado, far away from any working farms. Really, the only thing I remember even thinking about farming in high school was once I saw a bumper sticker that said, don't complain about farmers with your mouth full. And that kind of hit me. So my only window on food production at all was helping my grandpa in his garden. He, he was a World War I vet that took the whole victory gardening thing seriously. And I love my grandpa and I loved spending time in his garden. But there's no way that I would call that exposure to agriculture. I pretty much grew up as a kid of the Silent Spring era. I didn't read the book when it came out. I was only seven, but, uh, you know, I was very much influenced as everybody in my generation was. I was a card-carrying member of the Wilderness Society by high school, and I remember participating in the Denver Parade for the first Earth Day in 1970. I pretty much thought of myself as an environmentalist, which I actually still do. So I ended up going off to, to Stanford to study biology as an undergraduate, and uh, I gravitated towards the classes in plant biology. I'm sure partly because they were so interesting and partly I was trying to avoid the pre-meds. But these were very basic science. Uh, they weren't really about agriculture. But for one of the classes, I ended up reading a paper that was about a big problem with the U.S. corn crop in 1970. There was a disease that caused a whole bunch of problems and, and really damaged the corn supply in that year, kind of as a surprise. And in the process, I learned that plants can get sick. Plants get diseases, mostly ones that are caused by fungi. I didn't know much about fungi and that this all depends on the weather and it depends on the genetics of the crop. It just sounded like a really interesting area, but with knowing really no more than that, I ended up applying to graduate school in a field called plant pathology. So I didn't know much about where to go, got a recommendation that I should apply to the University of California at Davis because that's one of the big ag schools for the state. So I did. And also, I was influenced by Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb, that had come out during the time I was an undergraduate. And basically, he was talking about the, the specter of mass starvation because population was rising, he thought, faster than food production could rise. So I think as many people in my generation, I thought, well, I'm going to go do something where I can help feed the world. So I got accepted to go to UC Davis, but it turned out that the only professor that would sort of take a risk on bringing in this kid with no ag experience at all was uh, Dr. Marianne Saul. She was the first female professor in this plant pathology department, in the history of the department. And it turns out that she, for the state of California, was assigned responsibility for the diseases of grapes. Well, that wasn't exactly the feed the world kind of thing that I imagined, but I was going to get married that summer and I needed some sort of support. So in the spring of 1977, um, I had graduated early, so I went and started working for Marianne. And in her experiments around the state that uh, worked with the wine grape, table grape, and raisin grape industry, it turns out that that's a pretty nice first introduction to the real world of agriculture. So 
I would go around to these various vineyards around the state because Marianne was really good at doing applied field research and doing it in cooperation with the progressive grape growers around the state who were willing to host one of the experiments in their vineyard. So I'm out with no previous experience in agriculture looking at vineyards. And it was spring and there was this process going on. What happens is in California, it rains in the winter, lots of plants grow. Then as it comes spring and the plants are about to leaf out again, they've been dormant all winter, the growers really don't want all those plants growing right in the row where the vines are because they would be competing for the fertilizer and and actually quite precious water supply that they're giving them. They're giving them water through a drip irrigation system. So what the growers were doing in those several of the vineyards I visited early on is a process that's called using a French hoe. And what it is is a big mechanical plow blade that's pulled behind a tractor, and it goes along that row where the vines are. The trunks of them are about every eight feet in a row, and they're all hooked up to this trellis. And the plow would go along in the row, and then a little triggering mechanism, it would be hydraulically pulled out so it didn't chop the vine off, and then it would go back in again and plow some more of the row. And even with the unexperienced eye, what I could see especially since a lot of vineyards are on hillsides, that this was just exposing the soil to a bunch of erosion potential. Not to mention the fact that occasionally the thing didn't work and it would injure the vines. So then a couple of weeks later, with my big three weeks of experience now in agriculture, I was driving with a vineyard manager in in Monterey County and uh, looking at the site where we're going to do another experiment. It was also on a hillside, but in this case, that strip of land right under the vines along the trellis was clean. There weren't any weedy things growing there. The middles, which is the part between the rows, was nicely mowed, which is what you'd like. Then, you know, during the season, that area tends to kind of die back a bit because it doesn't rain much in California in the summer, but it's there holding the soil. But in this vineyard, there was no sign of any tillage in this very clean vine row. So I knew something was different, even with my little experience. So I asked the farmer about it, and he said, oh, yeah, in this block, we used a brand new herbicide called Roundup. It's great. It does a great job on the weeds, and it doesn't hurt the vines as long as it only hits the woody part of the trunk. And um, the herbicide doesn't move in water. It's not toxic to birds or mammals or things. It's really great. I think everybody will be using it soon in vineyards and orchards. And actually, he was right. But this whole idea came as a shock to me. First of all, there can be something that's a pesticide that's new, and there can be something that provides an alternative to a problem like soil erosion. And could there be a pesticide that didn't fit my sort of, you know, standard image that pesticides are all these toxic, deadly things? So that, that was the first sort of eye-opener that I had. The next big one came about a year later. By this time, it was May of 78, and I was walking in one of Marianne's experiments again, this time in a vineyard right on the Davis campus, and it was at bloom time for grapes. Well, now, bloom time in grapes is not anything very impressive. They don't need any insects to pollinate, just a little bit of wind, and they pollinate just fine. And so they don't even make any petals. They're not trying to attract anything. So not real impressive. But as I was walking through the vineyard that day, I got this wonderful floral aroma. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I was in a bunch of vineyards last bloom time, last May. 
and I don't ever remember smelling anything nice. Then I realized what was going on. This particular experimental block that I was in, we were testing a new fungicide, happened to be called Bailaton. And until I had been in this vineyard, every vineyard I had ever been in, where the grapes were actually growing and the leaves were out, smelled like sulfur. Because for centuries, farmers, grape growers, have used sulfur to control a disease called powdery mildew. This, this goes back many centuries. It's a natural product. Uh, it can even qualify for organic. But I got to say, it's not a very nice thing to be around. Um, I'm sure if you're a, a worker in a vineyard or, say, you happen to be a graduate student that spends time around in vineyards, sulfur has a really strong smell. It can really irritate your eyes and skin. It's not going to kill you. you know, it's nothing like that. But one thing I had to be very careful of is that any of the clothes that I ever wore in a vineyard, you wouldn't wash them with your other clothes or everything would come out smelling like sulfur. So in this experiment that we were in, it was kind of exciting. Again, kind of eye-opening for me. With the sulfur, it, it was normally applied as a dust at four to eight pounds of the product every seven to 10 days from the time the shoots were about six inches long until the point at which the grapes really start to ripen up. That's 10 or 12 times a year in every vineyard. But this new fungicide only had to be applied at a rate of a few ounces per acre and only every 21 days. And once again, it wasn't toxic to much of anything but the fungus and it didn't smell and it didn't cause eye irritation or anything like that. So here I was learning again that it's possible that there can actually be positive progress in the options that farmers have with pesticides. And once again, turned out that the farming community enthusiastically adopted this new option, probably even too much so. Fortunately, there have been a couple of generations of new fungicide options after this one. So anyway, that was my main exposure. You know, those weren't the central things I worked on. But then when I finished my PhD and after a couple of years working back at Colorado State University, I ended up getting an offer for a job at DuPont Company back in Delaware. And there I would be actually getting involved in that discovery process of finding new chemicals. And I think because of those positive experiences I had had in my California time, I realized, you know, that's a very useful thing. I'd like to be part of that. And uh, in the seven years that I spent there, I got a real appreciation for the fact that finding these newer and better things takes a lot of time, a lot of looking, and a lot of investment. And that makes it all the more impressive to me that between, you know, the multiple companies around the world, kind of a shrinking number, unfortunately, that this kind of discovery goes goes on and, and that you find these newer, better, more active, safer materials. And in fact, it's that same discovery process that, that finds the tools we use, say, to deal with the pests of our houses or the things that might bug our animals or the things that we might be able to use to try to control mosquito-borne diseases. That's the basically the discovery thing that does that. So anyway, I felt great about my time at DuPont. I, I was there for seven years. I have since been involved in all sorts of other things in agriculture. And what I've learned is that chemical pesticides are one of the things and one of many things in, in the toolbox that farmers need. That toolbox needs to include things like biotechnology, engineering advances, control with biological organisms, and now actually even big data is a very exciting part of what's going on. So really, I'm glad that I stumbled into the field of agriculture all those years ago. It's turned out to be a place I, I can pursue the ideals I had all the way back to those high school days in Denver. 
And looking back, I'm really lucky to have landed in, in Dr. Saul's lab because more than some of the other faculty members there that were more basic scientists, she was really connected with the practical needs of the grower community. That turned out to be perfect for me. I learned a lot in those first few years about pests, what it takes to control pests, but also about innovation. And what that innovation requires is progressive farmers, publicly supported researchers, investment from private companies, and oversight by regulators. And it can all turn out into a very good story. <music>